Welcome to the Doing Good Business Podcast, designed to bring out the best in you and your organization. I'm Laura Heacock, a leadership coach on a mission to create a culture where business is the true balance of head and heart. I work with leaders and companies on how to leverage my brand of kindness to gain powerful results. And I'm Kelly Stewart of The Positive Business, helping you shift conversations to identify what works and find ways to build on that success with people, planet, and profit in mind. The Doing Good Business Podcast is the place to learn about transformational leadership qualities and purpose-driven business practices that are essential to success in today's modern market. You can make the world a better place through business, and the business case for that starts now. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Doing Good Business. Kelly and I are extremely excited to have our guest today. So welcome, Doug Kirkpatrick. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Lara. Excited to be here. So tell us about your work in the world and what you do and what you love, which that word at the end there is uh, one of the things that first made me excited to reach out to you. (laughs) Uh, Great. Well, I'm anti-bureaucracy. My (laughs) mission in life is to free people from the yoke of bureaucracy and give them the agency and autonomy and freedom to do their best work and live their best lives. Well, that sounds like doing good business. (laughs) So I, Doug, first heard you on another podcast that I love, which we'll link to. It's called Brave New Work. And you were very kind to respond to my LinkedIn invitation, which I sent as soon as I had forwarded that episode to Kelly. But Aside from you talking about the relationship between love and work, which Kelly and I are huge fans of, what really made my ears perk up was the concept of organizational self-management. I think Kelly and I between us have 50 years in corporate America, and it was a new term to both of us. So can you share a little bit about what that means and you know, the value and benefit of a self-managed organization? Sure. Well, self-management, you know, in, short, in a short definition, is management of oneself as opposed to management of others. And we're all used to management of others in the organizations in which we've all lived and worked, and also in our families and also in our educational institutions. And in corporate America, management of others really started in the early 1800s and 1841, specifically October 5th, 1841, when two locomotives collided on the Western Railway, Massachusetts, killing a conductor and injuring a number of people and creating a national scandal. And so the Western Railway hired one George Whistler, a civil engineer, to investigate And he came in and conducted an investigation. And the fruit of his investigation included the world's first business org chart. Wow. Which was a standard traditional command and control, Mm top-down, bureaucratic, hierarchical org chart. It included departments and lines of authority and career ladders and all the other artifacts of traditional management with which we've been working ever since. Mm -hmm. George's wife went on to pose for a painting called Whistler's Mother, eventually as a side note. 
<laughs> but we we all struggle with the, this uh, traditional command and control. Now, I don't fault the people of the early 1800s because we were starting to branch out from the guild economy into a, a national economy with expanding markets, as particularly after the Civil War, massive transportation systems, rail systems, steel factories, eventually automobiles, aviation, and all the rest. So I don't blame people for trying to manage those systems in the way they did. And management is very simple. Management is planning, organizing, controlling, selecting, and coordinating. It's how work gets done. It's the social technology of doing work in organizations. That's all it is. Uh, planning the strategy, organizing his leadership, controlling his budgeting, selecting his hiring and firing, coordinating his teamwork. All that stuff needs to be done. It also happens to be the least efficient activity of any organization. Mm -hmm. It's not about delivering value directly to customers in a value chain. It's about all the other stuff that surrounds that. And so what is self-management? Self-management is simply taking all those elements of management and instead of vesting those activities in a tiny cohort of designated managers at the top of a bureaucratic pyramid, it's slicing those pieces up and distributing it to everyone in the organization. Why? Because everyone is already a manager in his or her own personal life. We're all making gigantic life-altering decisions on our own already in life without a boss. So we're deciding who to date, who to marry, what to do for a living, where to go to college, whether to buy a house or a car, all the other things of life. Somehow we accomplish these things without a boss. So it's only when we enter the portal of the workplace that we apparently uh, can't function unless we have a boss. <laughs> and that begs the question, why is that? And so self-management's answer to that question is, we don't need a boss. We don't need a human boss. In self-management, there is a boss. It's, it's just not a human boss. The boss is the purpose and mission of the enterprise. And so we remove coercion. We remove command authority. We exercise leadership through trust, respect, and communication, and we slice up the elements of management and distribute those elements throughout the entire organization, in effect, creating an entire network of self-managers. And so that's what self-management is. Now, we do need people to keep the commitments they make to each other within that network. So it's not okay to pretend like, you know, I can do whatever I want. I'm a self-manager. I don't care what other people think. That's, that's not okay. That's not what it's about. It's about honoring commitments and doing so in a non-coercive way. So in a nutshell, that's, that's self-management 101. Well, Doug, thank you for that. This is Kelly. And, you know, as you described that, the irony has not been lost on me and I've observed it and I just... I love the way I wish you could see me. I wish our listeners could see me because I was nodding my head the whole time. I'm sure Laura was too going, mm -hmm, yes, mm -hmm. but the irony has not been lost on me that it like it's this cycle, right? Where employers and, and bosses will say, geez, people just don't seem to do what they're supposed to do and, and take action. And yet 
the irony is that the the process has been set up for people not to be able to completely take action. Would that be fair? Absolutely. Traditional management, which, you know, worked to an extent in the 1800s and early 1900s, is really not working today because now we have information moving at light speed mm-hmm. uh, to people who are capable of making decisions that are just not able to because the bureaucracy won't let them. And so, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it really holds people back. And bureaucracy is designed to destroy accountability because when something goes wrong in an organization, the people on top can point downward and say, well, I didn't follow my instructions correctly. Or at all. And the people, but the people below can point upward and say, well, they didn't give us the correct instructions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a a complete recipe for non accountability. And so some of the very things that employers want, they actually cannot structurally achieve with these command and control practices in place. Absolutely. And if you just look at the C suite of most organizations, the truth is often filtered or not conveyed because people below other people in chain of command know that they can be fired mm. for delivering the wrong message. Right. And so everything's filtered. It's also not a recipe for great teamwork and collaboration necessarily because if there's a career ladder leading to one apex point, then people are often happy to step over other people to get to the top Mm -hmm. in a a traditional promotion cascade. And people at the top or at other levels as well know that there may be only a couple of really bad decisions away from being fired themselves. So it's a very lonely and anxious place to be in a hierarchical pyramid, especially toward the top. So these organizations today are designed to obscure accountability and to create political situations and often nasty politics takes place and it's not conducive to creating organizations where people are free to bring their entire selves to work and express themselves and do the best work of their lives. Doug, I'm really curious. Is this you know, I think about this as sort of, and like, honestly, I love the concept and I still have a hard time wrapping my head around it. Like, can this be implemented in an organization? Is this a ground up framework? You know, how does, how does a company, a leader listening start to do this? Or can you even start when you have a traditionally designed bureaucratic organization? Great question. And I would say that you can change an existing organization. And one of my favorite stories along those lines involve a young woman leader named Stephanie Gloden. She was with the University of Phoenix, the Apollo Group in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And she led a department of IT and customer service professionals. And she was reading my book, Beyond Empowerment, and it inspired her to transform her department. And so she got together with her fellow leaders and uh, about 10 of them or so, and they started a book club and they worked through the book and they theorized an implementation plan. 
And then they began to share their thoughts with the wider organization, people who would be affected. And they achieved buy-in and began a transformation. And she said it took about 12 months. And at the end of that process, they were completely successful. They had risen above some challenges. They'd, they'd had some pitfalls they had to work through, but they were able to achieve a self-managed oasis or island inside the larger organization with the blessing and permission of, of her boss in the larger organization. And I was able to meet with them and her and the leadership team there. And to a person, they described that the principles of self-management, which are non-coercion, don't use force against other people, and keep commitments. Those two principles not only benefited them in their lives at work, the University of Phoenix, but also in their lives outside of work, in their family lives or community lives or civic organizations, all aspects of their lives got better as a result of embracing the principles and practices of self-management. So that was one of my favorite stories. And so it can be done in an existing organization, which is traditionally structured. That's music to our ears here. And, and it is a big part, if not the largest part of why this podcast exists, you know, talking about being able to bring yourself to work your best self and, and put that into practice and be successful. So I want to focus on the success part a little bit. What are business leaders trying to achieve when they transition to this culture of self-management? I mean, Laura and I are, are big proponents of, of helping people recognize that we're moving from command and control to what I'm calling distributed and dynamic business environment now. But what are there things that kind of bubble to the top that they're trying to do, whether that's they're looking for better performance, more engagement? What typically do you see is the impetus for this kind of like radical idea that's not really radical, but, you know, <laughs> for something that's when we're talking about replacing something that's been used for, you know, over 140 years. some years. Right. It seems rather radical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 180 years. I would say the reasons or the mix of reasons are as varied as the number of leaders considering self-management. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen so many different motivations. One is anxiety. It's oh. just the recognition that you know things really aren't working as well as they should be or could be, and it's that gnawing anxiety that you know, gee, you know, we could have a competitor that figures out how to self-manage. And by doing so, slashes the cost of bureaucracy. And by doing that, gains immediate strategic competitive advantage in the marketplace. I've seen leaders who view this as a, an organizational succession planning tool. Hmm. They want, uh, they're, they're close to retirement. And they're, they see self-management as a way to create a resilient, adaptive, robust organization that they can feel good about leaving. I've seen leaders who care about things like engagement, um, Mm -hmm. retention, business performance, return on assets, all those things. I suspect it's a mix of motivations. 
right. for most leaders. And what the predominant motivation would be really depends on the leader and the context in which they're operating. That makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. If you could think of a specific example where, where you see this working, I'm curious as to what are some of the early indicators that the business leaders would know this is working? I mean, and that's what I'm saying if you have, if there's a specific example that would help you illustrate that and something you can share, that would be great. Or are there kind of generic early indicators that say, hmm, this is going to, this is really going to take hold and it's going to produce what we want it to? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if there's any any single metric that indicates self-management is working, and partly because there are so many flavors of self-management. The one in which I grew up and with which I am most familiar is a very idealistic and some would say radical form of self-management, <laughs> which is governance totally based on the two principles that I articulated. Uh, don't use force, keep commitments. The reason for adopting those principles at Morningstar, the company in which I worked, were that they're the most fundamental principles of human interaction. They are to human beings what gravity is to physics. They are the foundation of all law everywhere in the world. And we know these are foundational principles because if you imagine a world where everyone abandoned the use of force, we wouldn't need armies or navies or police or locks on our doors. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's totally unrealistic, uh, as we all understand, <laughs> but that's not really the point. The point is the closer we can approach that ideal, at least in an organizational sense, the more space we open up for human happiness mm-hmm. and prosperity and teamwork and performance and all the other things. And similarly for commitments, if you imagine a world where everyone kept the commitments they make to each other, what an amazing world that would be. And of course, that's not reality. But again, that's not the point. The point is, the closer we get to that ideal, the better off we are as human beings, the more space we open up for performance and keeping commitments has measurable, Mm -hmm. quantifiable economic and financial value. So that could be one metric. Uh, Mm -hmm. That could be a metric of uh, how well self-management is working, is the degree to which commitments are being kept. And there's actually software out there now. Uh, There's a piece of software called Commit Keeper, designed by David Arella, who is, I think, Microsoft's first IT HR manager in the 1980s. And Commit Keeper actually tracks commitments inside an organization. And that tracking is a very good indication of organizational health. Right. So that could be one one measure and, and just business performance, return on investment, return on assets. As a result of that could be a, a measure, although affected by many other things, of course. Yeah, degree of happiness. I mean, there are happiness surveys. Uh, Sylvia Garcia uh, ran the Coca-Cola Happiness Institute. Mm-hmm. And so they've got some survey intellectual property that lets you measure the degree of happiness in an organization. We used to talk at Morningstar about a smile index, you know, how happier people right. go about the work day. So I suppose those could be measures. You know, Marshall Goldsmith, the executive coach, talks about he can tell when executives are, are doing well because they're lighthearted mm-hmm. and enjoying themselves. So 
different ways to think about measurement. Those are some ideas. Morningstar, we did it for very, very idealistic reasons and have maintained it for over 30 years for idealistic reasons. So we're never going to change, even if it you know didn't seem like it was working. And some days, maybe it doesn't. But it does take an act of will. So the great philosopher Peter Kestenbaum was the subject of a very influential Fast Company article in 2000 called, Do You Have the Will to Lead? And he asked these big questions of leaders all around the world. Do you have the will to lead? And so it's partly just a matter of willpower on the part of leadership. Like what you're hearing on the Doing Good Business podcast? Then you'll love working with Laura or Kelly. Visit doinggoodbusiness.com forward slash the host to learn about them and how their services can help you do good business. I think that's so true. And I love that you're highlighting some things that I think more leaders are starting to think about, but again, not necessarily comfortable for them. And that is kind of the qualitative impact of some of these things that are still hard for some companies to measure, yet you know intuitively it's working, right? You know that when people feel better, they're thinking better. And it's just funny to me that we don't really put as much emphasis on that as we we could be putting on it or really rely on that as, a, as you said, a measurement of the health of the organization, which makes you more resilient in times of change, makes you more sought after when times are good. Yeah, exactly right. And if you think about the current COVID situation, you know, how well does command and control work over a Zoom screen? Mm. You know, <laughs> that get, it can get a little bit silly sometimes. And I'm coaching people right now uh, who are struggling with command and control managers who are, you know, trying to exert pressure through a Zoom screen to workers who are already overloaded because mm-hmm. they're doing their own work plus all the work of people who were laid off during COVID. So mm-hmm. it's really kind of an opportune moment to start to rethink these uh, ways of doing business. Amen. Yeah. So Doug, you talk about love and I'm curious, is love an ingredient in self-management? Is it a result? Is it both? How does, what's love got to do with it? Where does it come into the (laughs) equation? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. Love is, love's a question that our founder at Morningstar, Chris Rufer asked us at a company actually prior to Morningstar where, where a few of us were working with him in the 1980s he said what's work got to do with love and and Mm -hmm. you know we just kind of looked around puzzled like i you know we don't know (laughs) what does work out i don't know and he didn't really answer the question but he wanted to pose the question and for me work is a way to express one one's humanity and so if Mm -hmm. you think about work it's about creating value for other human beings And why would you want to do that? Why would you have any motivation to do that if you didn't really care about people and love them? Every business that's ever existed or ever will exist is designed to serve one or more of eight commercial human needs. And so once you get past food, clothing, and shelter, it's communication, transportation, entertainment, personal security, and healthcare. And that's it. Mm -hmm. So... You're fulfilling a human need. That's a great expression of love. And if you are in an organization working with people, you better care about them because people know when you don't. And mm-hmm. 
and the people will not respond. They, uh, they will, if you're a leader, they won't respond to you and you'll never be able to inspire, motivate people to greatness if you don't have love for people at a, at a very fundamental level. I mentioned uh, Peter Kestenbaum. You know, he's, he's a, uh, probably one of the greatest philosophers of work and life. And, and he's also happens to be my best friend. He's 93 mm-hmm. and I talk to him pretty much every week. And, oh. and we talk about, you know, love as, as a fundamental element, building block of uh, life at work. Mm-hmm. And part of it is achieving one's own greatness. Greatness is inherently good, something to which we should all strive. If, you know, the opposite of greatness is mediocrity. Who wants mediocrity for themselves <laughs> or, or their family members or the yeah. people with whom they work? That's, that's ridiculous. So it's really about, you know, achieving leadership and, and distributing leadership, letting everyone have an opportunity to lead as they're willing and able, letting everyone have an opportunity to innovate as they're willing and able in order to create value for their Mm -hmm. fellow human beings and realize greatness ultimately, if we possibly can. Mm. It it almost seems like it's taking it back to Guild Day. You know, if you think about work being love made manifest, right? And the, the care for which craftsmen labored you know, in, in creating something in a very small community where the people are using it were the same people they were living with, worshiping with, shopping with, you know, they were, they were all there together. And it almost feels like there's an element of that in what you're saying, which feels wonderful, <laughs> wonderful to me. Yes. Right? Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. We've got to figure out how to let people be creative at work. I mean, that mm-hmm. was the great downfall of Taylorism. Mm-hmm. where we just sliced work up into little bits and then asked people to just basically become cogs in a machine doing the same repetitive tasks a million times a day. Right. And, okay, you're getting a paycheck, so what do you have to complain about? Well, my, my life has totally been reduced to being a cog in a machine, so that's the complaint. So if we can create workplaces that allow people to be as creative and innovative as they possibly can, that's a great expression of love in itself. And I think about blue-collar occupations, for example. Uh, Matthew Crawford wrote a great book called Shop Class as Soulcraft. And Mm -hmm. he talks about the cognitive content of many blue-collar jobs, so-called blue-collar jobs, is quite high. Right. And I think about Morningstar, the mechanics and electricians and automation specialists, quality specialists at Morningstar, especially in the mechanical field, may only have a year or two of community college at that, but they're the best in the world at what they do. Hmm. And they have roles that have an extremely high cognitive content. And they take classes, they read books, they, they deliver classes very well paid, very well compensated. They are the best in the world at what they do. And some of them are personally responsible for eight, nine, 10, 11 million dollars worth of equipment. And talk about self-management. They're involved in strategy, uh, planning, organizing, controlling, budgeting, hiring operators, coordination, meetings, all those things. That is management. 
And so they are self-managers, and they are the best in the world at what they do, and they're they're paid well for it. Wonderful. I think it's amazing. And, you know, I'm curious what, and I'm going to use the word leader in the traditional sense, but, you know, thinking about kind of jumping off of the example you just gave, but, you know, when you have traditional leaders, so many people are, you know, aspiring to go up a ladder and, you know, think that there's some meaning in moving from director to VP or what have you. How have you seen leaders shift when they move into a more self-managed philosophy or structure? Well, it is a mind, mindset shift. And yeah. so it's it's actually not particularly easy to make a shift when one is steeped in um, traditional management. Mm-hmm. It's a great video called The Backwards Bicycle. It's easy to find on YouTube. And the engine, young engineer designed a bicycle that allows you to turn the handlebars to the right, but it steers to the left and vice versa. And I think it took him like seven or eight months to learn how to ride that bicycle because he had to unlearn, yeah. you know, riding a bicycle. But young kids can kind of figure it out pretty quickly. But people who have been immersed in, in the uh, traditional ways have, have a very difficult time. And it's partly uh, because of our educational system where most MBA schools are um, still steeped in traditional management. Mm -hmm. And I've run into that as I've tried to hire MBA students for projects over the years. I've I've experienced that myself. And so there's unlearning that needs to take place. It's very difficult. But when someone's mind shifts, then they they lose concern for titles. Titles become kind of irrelevant. And we haven't, we've never had titles at Morningstar in 30 plus years, which is completely natural internally and not that confusing externally either because customers, suppliers, uh, stakeholders get used to the no title concept and they know who to talk to anyway. And so it's really not a problem. Hmm. So one loses concern with titles. There's no traditional career path in a fully self-managed enterprise. So one charts up one own one's own path if one sees a, a role to try out uh, that's interesting great as long as it makes sense for the enterprise and the other people working in the enterprise great you know right. people are free to try out uh, new roles and so but there's no vertical progression mm-hmm. it's not that you get more power or a gr- greater span of management control because no one's controlling anybody else you're controlling yourself so it's expanding your own subject matter expertise and developing your own talents and skills. And that's that's totally okay. So leaders, some leaders get that. And so they're willing to make the leap, jump into the deep end of the pool, realize it's going to produce some anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's about embracing simple principles, as we discussed earlier. And it's also about giving up power, giving up control. And that's really a hard thing because mm-hmm. power is uh, somewhat hardwired into our brains. There's some mm-hmm. neuroscience. Ian Robertson wrote a book called The Winner Effect, How Power Affects Your Brain. Mm-hmm. He describes how when you exercise command authority, you get a little shot of dopamine in the brain. Mm-hmm. And so it explains why some leaders become addicted to power. Mm-hmm. So they have to overcome that. And overcoming that is an act of will. Again, do you have the will to lead? 
You know, there's in the work that I do, Laura's familiar with it. And, and part of that is asking these generative questions. And there are several characteristics of that. But the one that I share with people, I save it to the end is to say, because I think it's aligned to what you're saying. There are questions for which you do not already have the answer. And I think that's one of the hardest things for anyone as a leader, personally, as a parent in business, right? Because there's this assumption that we've learned that we should have all the answers as the leader. And it's very hard then to open up that door to curiosity when it's the people who quote unquote report to us, right? Or the people that we feel we're supposed to be taking somewhere on a journey with us. And I think that that's part of that is just trying to practice that and 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 give yourself, I'm sure Laura would, would be better able to talk about this than I would, but you know, to to exercise that self-care in allowing yourself to unlearn one thing and learn something new at the same time. But it can be done. And I that's mm-hmm. the point that I'm excited by and what you're talking about because it's a proven model, what you're talking about at Morningstar, others and reading this book called Maverick by Ricardo Semler about the Semco organization in Brazil and things he did in the 80s, you know, all all along these lines. So it's not something that is so fresh, fresh new, right? That there's no model for it. The models are there and people can find them. And and that would be a great support, you know, what you've written about it and and what others are doing. And I'm I'm inspired. I feel really good. (laughs) (laughs) Glad to hear it. Yeah, I mean, it feels freeing, honestly, the idea it's like kind of shaking off some shackles of of this old structure. And, you know, I know you mentioned your book, Doug Beyond Empowerment, you also have the No Limits Enterprise, would love for you to just wrap us up by sharing where you would love for folks to find you, your books and anything that you're excited about this year. It is St. Patrick's Day. So, you know, as we're recording, (laughs) we're feeling kind of lucky. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to be at Kirkpatrick on St. Patrick's exactly. Day. That's right. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, indeed, indeed. So find me on LinkedIn, Doug Kirkpatrick. My LinkedIn handle is redshifter3, numeral three, redshifter3, but Doug Kirkpatrick, I'm on LinkedIn. That's the best place. I keep that site up to date, curate all my articles and, and uh, books and etc. there. So um, that's the best place to start. What am I excited about? I, I'm very excited to be looking at the world coming out, hopefully, of the COVID crisis. There's a pent-up demand for people getting back together in person, face-to-face, mm-hmm. and reconnecting. I think that there will be a, a, a large explosion in the hospitality industry, uh, mm-hmm. among others, and I'm very excited about that. Hmm. Did a lot of traveling right up until March of 2020. So I hope to resume that very soon. There's some great conferences coming up this year, both online and in person later in the year. And just lots of uh, fun initiatives, developing a course with some friends and uh, working on some projects. I'm the guest editor of Emergence Magazine, which is the journal of Business Agility, published by the Business Agility Institute. Our issue is going to come out in May. The theme is humanizing business. So I'm the guest editor of that issue. So lots of initiatives and fun things going on. A very exciting time. 
That's Amazing. awesome. We if will have work, to grab that magazine. <laughs> absolutely. And if your work brings you to the greater Philadelphia area, let us know. Yes. Okay. <laughs> we will okay. definitely get together with you. Mm. Fantastic. Look forward well, thank to you so, so much for spending some time with us today. We will link to all of those amazing things. And, and thank you for sharing so many resources. I mean, I was yes. jotting down notes furiously, but thank you for sharing this radical concept and talking about <laughs> love at work and for just being with us here today. Great. Thanks, Larry and Kelly. Enjoy it. Take, Take care. care. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Doing Good Business. We hope you'll tune in regularly, leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and most importantly, tell a friend or a few. It's how we can build the critical mass to make the world a better place through business. The Doing Good Business podcast is brought to you by Laura Heacock of Laura Heacock Consulting and Kelly Stewart of The Positive Business. Learn how you can work with us at doinggoodbusiness.com slash the hosts. Let us know what you like about the podcast and what else you'd like to hear about through our online form on the contact page of doinggoodbusiness.com. We'll see you next time.